In 2019, more than 2 million people were incarcerated in the U.S. alone. These people, who cover a range of demographics and ages, are often forgotten and ignored as soon as they disappear behind the prison walls. Educational opportunities are especially neglected, and often formerly incarcerated people are left without options once they leave the prison system, since they were given no education and have almost no opportunities to get an education on the outside. Mass incarceration and a lack of prison education are both realities in our society and are often discussed and debated by students, academics, and politicians. But how often do the people directly affected by the prison education system, or lack thereof, get asked about the issue? To get a new perspective on prison education, we talked to two people with a more personal, boots-on-the-ground understanding of prison and the prison education system. Our first guest made history as the first trans woman ever to be transferred to a female prison, and our second guest has been an activist helping support incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals for his entire career. They'll share their personal experiences and expose some of the problems in the current prison education system, as well as offer suggestions and solutions on what can be done to improve the current conditions. I'm Sabrina Sladich, and our interviewers today are Miriam Larazi and Shayla Ashley. Welcome to Unheard Voices in the Carceral State, Barriers to Education While Incarcerated. My name is Angelina Resto. I'm a transgender woman. I'm a 60-year-old woman. Um, I've been living my life as a woman since the age of 13, so I've been a woman 40 plus years. Um, in Black and Pink, we're an organization that we do presentation, we do gigs, we go to Boston University, we go to many colleges and show the students what happened behind the prison walls. So my name is Mako Faniel. I'm currently the Director of Equity, Inclusion and Justice Education for the PD Green Program. And I've been with the PD Green Program for uh, going on three years. In my current role, I am responsible for operationalizing diversity and trauma-informed practices both internally and externally. Part of that is developing and leading the learning communities for internal staff and also for our college student volunteers. And I guess a little background on the PD Queen program. We support the educational goals of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated learners by uh, recruiting, training, and placing uh, high quality uh, tutors with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated learners who are pursuing high school equivalency degrees or college degrees, or who are enrolled in vocational or college bridge programming. Pre-pandemic, we had about 800 volunteers across the Eastern Seaboard that came from about 35 colleges and universities. Uh, they supported the educational goals of over 1,100 incarcerated and formerly incarcerated learners in over 40 facilities in uh, eight states and uh, in D.C. What are some challenges that you've seen for incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people in regards to education? So in 1994, on the Clinton administration, Pell Grants, uh, which helped subsidize uh, educational costs uh, for low-income uh, families, incarcerated people lost eligibility for that. And so what happened is that educational programs that 
depend on those funds to be able to, you know, teach inside of prisons or offer like degree programs for incarcerated folks. Some of them uh, like faltered. And so we have over 20 years of incarcerated learners, uh, you know, being denied college in prison or having to take correspondence courses or, you know, having to you know, pay out of pocket or there may be scholarship programs. So there's there's an access issue. There's a standardization issue. And this is at the pre-collegiate level. So there's no, there's not a federal standardization of what a program should offer. Meaning that if I go, if I'm incarcerated in Texas and then I want to move to New York, you know, will my educational credits, like, will they matter there if I want to go to college? Uh, other challenges are uh, women and girls. Uh, while their incarceration rates have increased since 1980, there remains a dearth of educational and vocational programming for women. Or if there is programming, it's programming that maintains male power, meaning that, you know, home economics or, you know, making women domestics, uh, continuity like between incarceration and reentry. Uh, most people who start their, uh, their college programming or educational programming on the inside will finish uh, on the outside. And so there's no continuity of programming to make sure that they're able to do so. Uh, space, uh, now technology is, is a concern. And so particularly during, um, during the pandemic, how do we make sure that incarcerated learners are able to um, continue their educational journeys if the facilities don't have technology so that they can you know, learn through tablets? Uh, there's a dearth of attention paid to pre-collegiate educational programming, meaning there are, you know, some statistics, over 30% of incarcerated learners are, don't have a GED. And for those that do have a GED or high school equivalency, there's a skills gap around numeracy and, uh, and literacy to be able so they can succeed in college programming. When you were incarcerated, was education ever presented as a, is it an option? It was, but it was a half an hour class. So how much do you learn in half an hour? You know? And then it was twice out of the week. So how much can you learn? And two and an hour a week, once an hour a week in school. And then the teacher would sometimes would show up and it was once an hour every other month. So I learned how to pick up a book. I learned how to start spelling the words that I that I wanted needed much much help in them. And I started pronouncing them. And I did my own schooling. I became my own teacher. Wow. Not that I'm the best at it. But I know how to defend myself when it comes to the legal system. I know how to defend myself when it comes to the streets. And I don't I do know how to defend myself when it comes with any legal issues that come towards my way. You know? So besides from the weekly classes that were not really helpful within um, the prison system, what kind of skill training or career help did you get to start so, your journey after? So, no. so what I did was since they was really giving me the proper school that I really needed, like for my GED and stuff like that. So I started taking skills. So I went, I took, I took welding. I took a printing. I took workshop at the prison industries. So I learned how to sew, how to take, take something and weld it. Um, I took electricity. I took, um, blueprint, how to build houses. Then I became the head cook of the prison. Then I became a chef and I graduated from culinary arts. So, and I did this with no school. Yeah. And I got all these certificates. I have over 40 certificates in my house that I can tell you that I got into Blue Ocean. Blue Ocean was a book that you read, and it will help you with your schooling, and they will try to give you uh, a GED again. 
But what's going on with that? The same thing. The teachers were getting paid, but they were just showing up. You know? Or if they wasn't in this prison, they was in the other prison. So the kids hopefully are getting graduated, which I'm gonna be happy for that. But then we're stuck because we're not getting the education that we can yeah. school to get. So they needed more teachers available. But because the prison system is so condemned and so ugly, who wants to work in the prison system? And the teachers seeing how we get treated. Because Miss um, Ness, I remember my teacher that I got, I got to see her out of three years, five times. <laughs> five times out of three years. And it was supposed to be once a week? Yeah, and it was supposed to be once a week. How has your experience as a trans woman of color impacted your relationship with education? A lot. Once be because we always be discriminated because of who we are. I was one of the almost 60s and um, at the time that I grew up and I started living my life as a woman, I was already 32, so 1974, 75, I started living my life as a woman. Back then, we wasn't even allowed to say that we were gay or that we were trans women. Thanks God that I was fortunate enough that my mother and my father accepted me no matter what. So I was fortunate enough that my family didn't understand what was gay life because before they didn't even say gay. Because I'm Puerto Rican and Canadian. My husband is Cape Verdean and African. Not only I was discriminated as a Puerto Rican woman and a Cape Verdean woman and a woman of color, but also my husband. And we're fighting for him to come home. He's been down 32 years already. He went in and he was 17. A baby. He didn't even have a full developed mind when they found him guilty for natural life. His first charge ever, ever. A kid with a 17-year-old mind. How can you give a kid and then send him to a state maximum prison at that age? And I'm standing strong. I'm standing very strong here and tall, not only for my husband, but for all those people that are behind this prison wall that are very innocent. And how do we get treated? What do you think education departments could do to help the issue of education in prison? Okay, well... There's really no education, like I told you. Right. And three years, I see my teacher five times, okay? I was supposed to be going once or twice every week, half an hour a day. But you just walk into the school from the unit to the school, it's already 10 minutes or five minutes. This room is every 15 minutes. So, you know, they have plots that are real long around the prison. So let's say from where you pick me up, Maybe to the next corner, that's a quad that you gotta walk to school. So that's already about two minutes. So by the time I take off my clothes this winter and sit in the, in the chair, and while they pass on as we go into class, that's another five minutes. So I'm getting 15 minutes of class. By the time the teacher says, okay, well, today's class is over. So what education am I getting? So what I bet, what they need to do is hire more teachers, have more professional teachers when they do get their interview. Make sure that they come Monday to Fridays. So they need to really get teachers that are going to be professionals. The interview has to be outstanding. And they have to let the teachers know that it's going to be a Monday to Fridays, okay? From 7 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Right. You're going to have students. So you're going to have your first period, an hour, hour and 15 minutes. Your second class, 11.30 lunch break from 12 to 3. At 2.45, I mean, if I was to run in jail, I would do that. I think that's, it's the only way that whoever's incarcerated is going to learn something and get something out of it. Right. 
how can academic institutions or more specifically education departments help with the prison education gap? Uh, offer uh, uh, degree-bearing courses on the inside, create a pathway for formerly incarcerated people to, to attend uh, their college, ban the box and admissions, lobby the Department of Education to remove the box from the uh, financial aid applications, do some work around uh, what does it mean to be uh, terminal responsive and create healing communities, partner with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people uh, to shape the guidelines and the policies of what the prison education program should be like. They can provide the necessary support. So a lot of colleges and universities are going to start jumping in the game uh, because a student comes with money, uh, either a scholarship or a grant, paying out of pocket, fellowship. And so increased enrollment, if they have space, increases the bottom line of the university. And so universities need to check their biases and assumptions and what their fears, because crimes are committed on college campuses all the day. Uh, every day and, and justice is never served and perpetrators of, of, of certain crimes are allowed to stay on campus. And uh, so there's not a, a fear of those people. And so when they check like why we have fears, like what are the what are the ideas and like epistemies, I, I would say, that are driving our fears of formerly incarcerated people. So I challenge institutions to uh, have prison education programs and create pathways for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, but to provide the necessary support. We'd like to thank Ms. Angie Resto and Mr. Mako Faniel for their help and perspectives and for sharing their experiences and recommendations with us. If you'd like to do something to help or get involved, you can find more information about the PD Green program at www.pdgreen.org. That's P-E-T-E-Y-G-R-E-E-N-E.org. Or follow up with Ms. Resto's organization, Black and Pink, at www.blackandpink.org. Thanks to Zach Bowerman, Maya Shrestha, and Crezia Pascuccio for their work on this project. And thank you so much for spending this time with us. We hope you learned something along with us today.